My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? That's how I feel when I stand up. <laughs> this is 1 Samuel 15, 10 and 11, and then verse 13. It says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And then verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And we're going to explain what that kind of means. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a gracious God who has loved us and rescued us and saved does. And I ask that this morning, would you be a people who get our eyes and our hearts and our ears and all that we are back upon who you are, what you have said and what you have done. And we'd be a people who not only hear the words you say, but actually listen to the words that you have spoken. And those will bring great grace in our lives. We live out this life for the glory of you and you bring your kids great joy. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we were coming into Christmas, and I had this great idea percolating around in my mind for I don't know how long to do this series called We Three Kings. I thought it sounded really catchy. And can I just say, you should never do a sermon series because it sounds catchy in your brain. Uh, You should always do it because it leads people back to the gospel of Jesus. I was two weeks into writing this. I was writing this week's message, and it's not going where I thought because God was convicting me and changing me because of my own stupidity, but he brings about his goodness. So the idea of our stupidity and God's goodness is what leads up to what we're going to talk about today. This is we're going to talk about Israel's first king they ever got. His name was Saul. We're going to run through some verses in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to give you the overarching theme of today's message. It is something that we all need to come to terms with, especially me, and it is this idea of self-deception. Our capacity for it, hopefully in the end, the solution to it, because most people cannot see their own self-deception because we are self That's right. That's what we're like. I think this is true for anyone in the Bible when you look at any longer form narrative of their life other than Jesus. What you will see is the self-deception that people tend to fall back into and live within. That we are human, we mess up, but God is good all the time. And the story of this first king named Saul, actually it's going to go all the way back to this book called Judges. In the book of Judges, and I swear one day I'm going to take you through the book of Judges. It's going to be an awful lot of fun as we look at the knuckleheads uh, that are there, but judges were meant to be people who led and judged on God's behalf. They were to lead Israel back to who God was calling them to be. There would be stewards on God's behalf and to deliver Israel to following God's ways to dispense justice and wisdom and grace. And there were some really good judges in Israel and there were some really terrible judges in Israel. There's a guy named Samson, horrible judge, okay? Horrible judge. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel come to the prophet Samuel. He is widely considered to be one of the one of the godliest prophets and a judge at the same time that Israel ever had. And they come to him and they ask for a human king, not God, to lead and rule over them. Now God is the one who always said, I am your king, I will rule over you. He wanted the Israelites to live trusting him in everything that they did because God knew Israelites, their need wasn't for military hero or genius. It was for him, just like our need today is for him. And up until 1 Samuel, God had demonstrated that he could actually deal with all of Israel's enemies that they would simply listen to and trust him. John Woodhouse writes this, he says, Their need was not for a brilliant political giant who could organize the nation efficiently. Israel's great need was a leader who could bring them back to God. And this is why God can 
consistently sent his, his people prophets and judges and not kings. But the people in 1 Samuel want a king. And Samuel is saddened by that. And so Samuel is angry. He doesn't understand. And he goes and talks to God about it. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, this is what we read. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So God then tells Samuel to warn the people of Israel what is going to happen when they have a human king. So Samuel tells them, uh, 1 Samuel 8, verse 11, he said, These will be the ways the king who will reign over you, uh, ways the king will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. We call this the draft. Okay? And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be his perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the rest of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. What do we call that? Taxes. That's what you know. Okay. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. Your donkeys? Oh, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Not that God doesn't hear the cries of his people, but he's going to let them steep in their sin to help them to understand what their choices lead them into. And so they refuse to listen to God and so God grants their request. Now you may look at those words in the story and think, what is wrong with those Israelites? Why would they ever want to walk away from God? Because this is what Samuel did. But I want you to see why the people said this, because it's important, and it leads to this idea of self-deception. Because we are Americans, we have American politics, and we're always thinking that guy or that girl or this person is the problem, and we're always like, I'm going to vote somebody else in there and fix it, but we never vote anybody else in. We keep voting the same people. Okay. So, here we go. 1 Samuel 8, verse 3. This is why they're asking for a king. When Samuel was old, he made his son judges over Israel. So Samuel's getting older, and he takes his sons. And he says, I'm going to make my, my kids judges in my place. This is like a pastor who maybe has been in a church for a really long time and has a son and says, oh, my son's going to be the pastor after me. Maybe that kid has no business being a pastor, but he's the son of the pastor. Well, that doesn't mean anything. It's God who calls people into ministry, and so we let God do that. But this is kind of what's happening here. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Does that give you a different spin on it? Samuel appoints these judges, but what do those judges do? They pervert justice. They pervert just, they take bribes in what they're doing. Samuel, very godly guy, but a terrible parent. Let his kids get away with anything and everything, and he put them into positions of power they had no business being in. So the people are very clear. We can't go on this way. Your kids aren't godly. They are hurting and destroying us. So they're very clear about why they're asking for a king, but Samuel doesn't see it. The people go to Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, and say, Behold, you are old, which is a great way to start a conversation, by the way. You should write that down. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. They say, 
You are godly, they are not. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel tries to talk them out of it. He knows this is not God's best for God's people, but they refuse to listen, partly because of his self-deception. For Samuel 8, 19, and 20, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that may also be like all the nations. And that's where Israel's self-deception comes in. We want to be like all the other nations. That's their problem. Bill Arnold writes this, It is true that Yahweh was not opposed to an Israelite monarchy. Rather, he was opposed to the kind of monarchy that Israel is now demanding. So the first thing you have to see right out the gate here is the self-deception of Samuel and God's people. Uh, I told you all the way back and didn't see that coming, that God is still going to bring about his purposes. He will simply now work through their sin rather than their obedience to get it done. Essentially, for the Israelites, it just gets a lot more painful for them. And so you'll see in 1, Kings, uh, I mean, uh, 1 Samuel 9-11, through God will make it perfectly clear who his choice for this coming king is supposed to be, this guy named Saul. Chapter 10 and 11, they'll cast lots. There's this big military victory over the, over the Ammonites. And so the Israelites are like, yeah, Saul is the guy. Samuel will essentially be the last judge in Israel, and he will anoint Saul as the first king in Israel. Uh, one commentator called this the beginning of Israel's Game of Thrones. Yeah, as you, you see this revolving door of these different people who will vie for power for the thrones of Israel. And it's a long list of men and women who vie for this power, and they always fail to listen and obey the things that God has said. First Kings 13 says, Saul was 30 years old when he was crowned king of Israel. He reigns for 42 years until he was 72 years old. But they're not easy years. They're really tough years, and they're full of constant warfare and personal failure on Saul's part. Ultimately, Saul and his sons are killed by the Philistines, and this Game of Thrones shifts then to David and his descendants. Saul eventually will become this power-hungry, abusive tyrant. His life will spiral down and down and down into tragic ruin. But he doesn't start out that way. At the beginning of his reign, he's a very likable guy. I would say one of the most charming things charming that you actually read about him is when Samuel is going to anoint him king over Israel. There's this huge celebration. And what Saul does is he goes and hides in the luggage of the caravan because he's, he's a little embarrassed and, he, and he's humbled. It's like, I, I don't want all this acclaim. And so he kind of hides. And originally, when he even begins to accrue power, instead of turning on his opponents, he's merciful to them. And this looks, and this starts to lead to other people wanting to take him, just thrown away, and take him out of power. He looks like what you'd really want in a king. He is, he's attractive, decent in character, and yet his life will spiral down into absolutely terrible evil. How does this happen? It happens by this thing called self-deception, where we always think that we are better or different than we actually are. It's kind of like death, right? We, we all know it's coming, but we're always surprised by it. Like, where did that come from? We, we know it's coming. In a recent survey on death, one seven-year-old kid said this, God doesn't tell you when you're going to die because he wants it to be a big surprise. Another kid, nine-year-old girl said this, doctors help you so you won't die until you pay all your bills. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But we are so surprised by things we should never be surprised by. And if anything, we should be a people who understand how easily self-deceived we are. There's actually a recent study done that shows 26% of Americans now believe that the government and not individuals should control the resources of a country to ensure everybody gets their fair share. Uh, 14% of Christians surveyed believe this. What is mind-boggling to me is when people do this in surveys, they say this because they believe people can't be trusted. Let me ask you a question. What is a government made up of? Concentrated evil, right? That 
I'm not a prepper. Well, maybe a little. But, you know, I'm just saying. You've got to be realistic about the things that we are actually saying. The capacity at our own self-deception is astounding. So let me show you how this actually works out in Saul's life and and where he goes. Uh, Saul had been given a directive by God to do a certain thing, and this is summarized by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. If you want to flip to 1 Samuel 15, we'll spend the rest of our time there, actually. 1 Samuel 15, verse 18. Samuel shows up to Saul and says, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Now, I know when we read that in our culture today, we think it sounds very barbaric. But the Amalekites were this horrible, terrible people. They, they hurt everyone around them. And God is doing this not just for the Israelites, but any nomadic people who have to be caught in the Amalekites' wake of destruction. So you've got to put this in the cultural context of that day. We can't be ethnocentric and sit back and say, oh, look how terrible that was. Or you miss the genius of what God actually says here. What, what God is saying to Saul is that I want you to go into battle with the Amalekites, and, but I want it to be an act of justice, not an act of empire building. And so I will not have you use force the way the Amalekites are using their force. You get, do not do this for, for profit. You do not get to take slaves or livestock or their capital. You're not going to profit one cent from this terrible but necessary act of justice. God wanted all of the Amalekites' things destroyed. And what Saul actually did, though, was he kept the best. He kept the wealth of the Amalekites for himself, and he kept their leader as a prisoner, kind of like a trophy. Even today, when we talk about war, one of the biggest evils in it is how people will profit from war. And this is what Saul just did. Saul is becoming like the Amalekites. Saul is acting the way the Amalekites were when God sent Saul to take out the Amalekites. Saul, because he started to become like this, you'll see Israel start to adapt these violent power status quo ways of the world. And this is why God comes and he removes Saul as king. I love, all the way back in the Iraq war, Tim Keller was talking to his congregation about this war, and he said something. Well, he said two things. Number one, he said, you're all on the Internet too much, reading too many articles that agree with you, so stop it. And he said, he said the second thing was, is that this text shows that sometimes war is actually necessary. We need to do something about people being murdered so we're not complicit in injustice. But he says, if you are for war, you've got to be really clear about what the text is saying, that it is incredibly rare when nations will go to war for actual justice, because nations will always say we're going to war for justice but they're really going for truth about how to expand their own power if we care about the scriptures we've got to realize most wars aren't really for justice so we have to be careful about what we're doing so we are not self-deceived but this war and what Saul does and all these things all lead to the idea of self-deception Saul starts off really nice guy he becomes like the Amalekites because of this self-deception I was talking to Sean Jones this week and I was like it's really hard to find worship songs that center around self-deception I it's kind of hard to find them. But this is how the text tries to get it across to us. Okay, 1 Samuel 15, verses 19 and 20. He says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoils and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Now, in the Hebrew, this is written very interesting. Uh, there is no word for obey in there when Saul actually answers. It's, it's nuanced. It's metaphorical. The word obey is coming from the sentences around it. So what actually the conversation is, why didn't you listen to the voice of the Lord? And Saul says, I did listen. That's kind of the conversation. Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What he says is, you say you listened. You may think you have listened, but you didn't really listen because it didn't change how you live. 
You didn't heed the things that God has actually said. The idea is that when we listen to God, we begin to do the things that he says. We start to follow him. To listen to the voice of the Lord is better than sacrifice. To truly grasp and be affected by what God has done, when we actually listen to that, is better than the fat of rams, the choice portion of a sacrifice. In other words, what the text is saying is that sometimes we can hear and not really listen. There are people who can read the Bible from back to front and memorize everything in it, and they are still jerks because they heard, but they didn't listen. It didn't change who they were. That's what self-deception is. And the human heart has this almost unlimited capacity to hide the truth from itself when it doesn't like things or find something painful. Is it possible to know something and yet not really know it or really not want to know it? That is self-deception. And I love what Keller said. He goes, self-deception is not the most terrible thing we do, but it's the reason we do the most terrible things. Great line. Great line. It's not the most terrible thing we do, but it's the reason we do the most terrible things. It's what makes us justify things that are really wrong. You can see how this works in Saul and how it's beginning to affect him. Because in 1 Samuel 15, God tells Samuel what's going on with Saul. And so Samuel goes to show up and and to talk to him. Samuel starts walking up this hill. And before Samuel can even say a word, in verse 13, Saul says, Oh, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Like Samuel hasn't said anything yet. And Saul's already trying to justify himself because he knows he didn't really listen. Self-deception is the ability to justify things we know are not right. You know how I know this? Because I am married, and I like electronic gadgets and guitars, and we have cats, and I know I have done this on multiple occasions. I'll just tell you a couple stories here. Um, And you can look at me and judge me all you want. Uh, First two services did. They were horrified, but I'm going to tell you my couple stories here. Uh, A couple years ago, we had this cat. Her name was Monkey. Okay, here's a picture of Monkey. Monkey's dead. Okay. How it's going to go, okay? This cat, it was sick. It was lethargic. It wasn't moving really well. My wife is like, we need to take the cat to the vet. And I said, why? It's a cat. It's not a dog. Take the dog to the vet. I'm just being honest with you, okay? This is how it went. My wife says what she does because the cat's sick and she loves the cat. She wants to take care of it. I say what I do because it's a cat, right? And I... I don't want to spend any money. And so I started trying to convince myself, you know, no, the cat's not really that sick. It ate something in the backyard. And, you know, if I take it to the vet, it might die anyway. And if I don't take it to the vet and it gets better, why not take it to the vet anyway? I got all these things going into my head because I am, I am squarely in the middle of self-deception, trying to convince myself it's not really that bad. Now, I love my wife, so eventually I did take the cat to the vet. She had to go to work. I took the cat to the, it died anyway. Um, but self-deception. I'm trying to convince myself it's not as bad as it is. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. My wife was a junior high school teacher for 15 years. We had some kids that overlapped and some parents that overlapped in the two things that that we did. And I cannot tell you the amount of parents when I would bring something up to them and talk to them about something that was going on in their kids' lives that parents would justify it or ignore it to the detriment of their children. It happened over and over and over again. Some parents would deny things to my face while they would lock up their liquor cabinet at home. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? Many people reference the end of World War II when the Allies went into Germany when World War II was actually over, as an example of self-deception. Many guards in these death camps tried to get rid of the evidence, so they would build mass graves, they would burn these bodies. But when the Allies came in, when some of the things that you see, it would just horrify them. In, in, the, in the town of Ordruff, General George Patton goes into one of these death camps, and he promptly vomits. 
because of all the destruction that was in it. So he goes and he questioned the prisoners who were still alive. And they said, every night the guards would go into town and they would drink and they would brag and talk about all the things that are going on here. The people in town must have known. So George Patton, he goes into town and he asks the townspeople and they said, oh no, we didn't know what was going on. So he makes all the people of the town, from the mayor to every able-bodied person, go out and dig individual graves for all these bodies that he found because he wanted them to at least be buried in a way that honored them. That night, the mayor and his wife go back into town and they hang themselves. And they leave this note and this is what it said, we didn't know, but we knew. That's the note. The very same mechanism that enables people to be complicit in that horrendous evil is the same mechanism that keeps me from wanting to take my cat to the vet, from parents saying, oh, my kids are messed up or I'm messed up. Saul shows how easy it is for us to get there. The first thing he does is he shifts blame. Okay? He says, it's not my fault. Saul says, I obeyed the Lord. And Samuel says, then why do I hear sheep bleeding? Bah! You know, if there wouldn't be sheep going, bah, if you listen to the voice of the Lord. In verse 15 of chapter 15, he says, The people, and that's a generic way of saying they, they spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. Somebody brought them. I don't know who did. They just showed up. I just came here. What's going on? And when he can't get around that, then he begins to justify, which is what we do. First we shift blame, and then we justify. It was wrong, but God and I are going to bring something really good out of this thing. Guys, if God brings goodness out of our sin, that's his goodness and grace. It's not the spoils of our sin. In verse 21, he says, But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. He says, Look at all the good we can do. Elizabeth Elliot said her father would say to her and her brother when they were kids, There's no use singing Jesus' praises when you're being disobedient. To obey is better than sacrifice. We all have this ability within us that can make the nicest and most decent of us spiral down into the depths of sin. And until we're willing to admit that about ourselves and our lives, we're going to be capable of the worst things. The human heart has this almost incredible capacity for self-deception. That is Saul's story, and it's our story. And so what's the solution in this? I mean, you know, you're, you're at church, so 50% of the time when I ask a question, the answer is going to be Jesus. And so that's partly part of the answer, but it goes to the idea of the gospel, the good news of God. We have to be honest enough to admit why certain things are painful to us, why certain things are embarrassing, why we don't want to speak the truth about certain things in our hearts and in our lives. We must be able to speak the truth of it because a lot of it comes down of how we image ourselves in our own minds when we don't trust what God has said over us and we want to trust what we say over us. When Samuel goes to find Saul, he hears that Saul actually first went to this place called Carmel, and he makes this monument to himself there. The guy who hid in the luggage now makes a monument to himself and his greatness at this place. And then Samuel shows up to him, and Samuel tries to re-steer Saul back. In chapter 15, verse 17, he says, Samuel said, that you are little in your own eyes. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. These are the words that God spoke over Saul. But Saul heard, but he didn't listen. And so Saul makes a monument. And he keeps the loot, and he imprisons the foreign king as a prize because he's trying to find his worth and his value in what he says about himself and what other people say about him. He's trying to make himself great. And what is wrong with Saul is what is wrong with us. We forget that it is God who gives us our worth and value. That the gospel in Jesus Christ, the good news that God has spoken over us, words of grace and hope and redemption, that he lived the life we should have lived and he died the death we should have died and he has given us his righteousness and we are called in to be his children and God loves us because we are his children. 
And we refuse to actually listen. We hear, but we don't listen. And when we forget, we focus on ourselves and deceive ourselves into thinking we are something we are not. Why can't parents admit when they're doing a bad job? Why do the Germans deny what the people are doing in the German camps? Why can I take my cat to the vet? Because too often we are so small in our own eyes, we don't trust what God has said. And then we'll say things like, I don't know, and it actually begins to make sense. Saul heard, but he didn't listen that God had anointed him king over Israel. He knew, but he didn't really know that God had honored him in this way. And so often we're exactly the same. We hear what Christ has done to rescue us, but we don't listen. We don't trust the things that he has actually said over us. Like, it's like Saul. We know on one level, but we don't really trust the words that God has spoken. I don't know if this can relate. I don't know if you can understand what's going on here. Because Saul knew, but he didn't really know the good news because he didn't let it get into him. And because he didn't trust the good news of what God has said, he can never look at the bad news about himself. In verse 20, Saul says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I mean, he says these words. He says these words out loud to the prophet who knows that Saul didn't really do that because Saul wouldn't admit what was actually in his heart of hearts. That the bad news is that without God, we are nothing. If the gospel is not our center, something else will be. And Saul makes his military success and his power his idol in his life. And the result was it twists him and it blinds him just like it does to us. You can't look at Saul and say, look at that idiot, look what he did, because we're exactly the same way. What Samuel does when he goes and he talks to Saul, this is what God's spirit does to us as believers today where Samuel goes and says, remember who God called you to be. God's spirit comes to us and says, remember what God has said over you. Remember his grace and his love and his goodness and the hope and that he has called you to be his child. God then sends us on a mission to go out and proclaim that good news, that goodness of who he is. And too often, we go to a church service one hour a week and we think, oh yeah, uh, that's it, that's all. That's self-deception. Because all of our lives are meant to be lived out as a people called the church in this world to worship Him in everything we do. And yes, it can be singing songs, and yes, it can be prayer, but it's also every relationship you have and every conversation you have, and yes, how you drive. All of those things all come together. And if you find your identity in your, in your stuff or the things you do or relationships or people, we will always spiral into self-deception. Hebrews 10.5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Those words of Jesus sound exactly like the words of Samuel. God doesn't want all the sacrifice. God doesn't want you to self-flagellate yourself and make yourself feel horrible. What God wants you to do is to trust him for the things that he has said over your life and live in the obedience of that. I mean, two weeks ago when I talked about obedience, I showed you how it's all about joy and God restoring joy to us. And and we hear the word obedience, that's a scary word because if that's what God desires, we're we're all doomed. Just try doing that tomorrow. Like, okay, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to live the golden rule. I'm going to treat people exactly the way I want to be treated. That will only last till the first roundabout. And then it goes right out the window, right? Because it doesn't. 
We have to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He's talking about Jesus. It's not just that Jesus' obedience makes him holy. Jesus' obedience also makes us holy because he has given it to us. And Philippians 2 is all about this. Jesus equal with the Father. He empties himself, dies on a cross. Though he was great, he becomes small by living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died. We get to become children of God. According to the book of Hebrews, Jesus lived and died in our place. So when we believe in him, we get to say, Father, accept me because of what Jesus himself has done. And that is what literally gets rid of the need for sacrifice. Literally. That is the only thing that does. And self-deception will only end when we focus upon Jesus, when our lives become about him. Uh, one of our elders, Mike, Mike Harmon, I love him to death. And sometimes I'll read through my message and, and he'll send me little notes about things. Hey, you should talk about this. And so he is like, where's the Holy Spirit in this? And if you don't know, Element is not a really big charismatic church, right? You know, we're like, you lifted your hands. Wow, you know, that's crazy. We're, we're kind of like that. But in my mind, all these, none of this stuff is possible without God's Spirit doing what he does. And because I think that way, sometimes I don't say it a lot. And I think sometimes maybe I need to say it more. What leads us back to this understanding is God's Spirit working in and through us. God's Spirit is the one that that brings this reminder of who we are and who He is and what He is doing. And the only way that we will live in true community with one another is by trusting God's Spirit, by doing what God calls us into, by trusting Him. We can actually then begin to have a community. Because we are centered on the gospel and God's spirit leading us to have this understanding of who he is and the relationships he calls us into. If you don't want other people to really speak into your life, if you get mad every time someone questions your motive, you are ripe for self-deception. You're ripe for it. And the reality is the only possible way to get help with self-deception is to trust God's leading to take us into relationships with one another so we can ask hard questions of each other. That God's spirit will say, you know, I want you to go here and connect with these people and live in truth and grace in this place. We should have close friends who understand the gospel, who can speak words to us, and we can ask them questions like, what is wrong with me? What things do you see? What are my character flaws? What are the things that are wrong with me that other people see and I pretty much don't? Because if you do not have friendships that are centered around the gospel, trusting in God's spirit to bring you back together, you're never going to ask somebody that question. And if you do, they're going to say, oh, no, you're great. And if they say, oh, no, you're not great, here's your issue. You're going to be like, get out of my life. I can't believe you said mean things to me. But you asked. So, you know, all of our lives must be centered around our understanding of the gospel, what God has said, that we're not focusing upon ourselves. We're focusing upon what he has said, because only then will we be a people who can live in the grace that God calls us into as a people. It takes courage. It takes community centered on the gospel to make this a reality. Understanding Jesus first in all that we do, the gospel, the good news gives us the courage to do that. See, the gospel is about God's love and grace and truth that enables us to deal with the things that hurt us because we know that we are first loved by him. That's where it comes from. Jesus said the truth will set you free. He's the truth. He sets us free. Imagine being a people who aren't so affected by what everybody thinks about us. You know what that would make us? Free. That's what it would make us. This is why the scriptures say that Christ came to set us free. It is for freedom's sake that Christ set you free. That is not just of how everybody else thinks about you, but how you think about you. Because the truth is that what God has spoken is the truth over us. 
I was talking to somebody after last service, and they said they had a friend that actually stopped coming to Element because I tell you how bad you guys are all the time. And, and, it's, and it's true. I mean, but the point is, is not to focus on how bad we are. Okay? The point is, yes, we're like this, and the only way that we actually change in our lives is to understand the goodness of the gospel. If, if we are trying to find our happiness and our worth and who we are, we are always going to fail. This is why we trust what God has spoken in grace and hope and truth and life. What His Spirit continually brings us back to the understanding of is that His good news. He has called us His children. He has rescued us. He has brought us in. And that's the hope that we get to live in. Not the hope of what we think about ourselves, but what He says about us. And this is what takes us to communion every week. It's a reminder of what God did to rescue us because He Himself deemed us worthy to come and die for This is why you break the cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me because God promised to rescue us and he comes and rescues us. And at the place of communion today, if you take communion, what I'd encourage you to do is lay down all of your self-deception and conceptions of who you are and let God speak the truth over you of what he has said and who he has called you to be. You can lay down all the things that people have said and the things that people have done. Because what matters is what God has spoken over us. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. If you're in a place today where you have let what everyone says about you kind of filter down, and that's your image of yourself because what other people have said, they would love to pray with you and to begin to talk about the understanding of what God has actually spoken in truth over us. That his grace and truth is what actually sets us free. We don't have to worry about what people are saying about us. We can trust what God has said about us. And when we understand what he has said, that will change how we begin to live. We can begin to live as people full of hope again. We can have joy because our hope isn't found in what people say or we say. It's found in what God has spoken over us. And if you want or need someone to pray with you this morning, they would love to pray with you. Now, there's offering boxes next to every single door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's always a response to what he has done. And there's some food outside. Grab something to eat. Take those short little sermon notes. And hopefully, you will have a friend this week you can ask some of those questions to. And if you don't, our goal is trying to connect you guys in friendships where you can grow deep enough to come to a place where you maybe could ask some of those questions to one another. Where you could say, hey, you know, what are the things that are wrong in me? What are the things that, that I, I do? What are the things that... Ha- and, and allow God's Spirit to lead you to, to someone who can speak the truth into your life. And then maybe pray with one another and trust one another as you speak the truth to each other. Because i got to tell you, we, God places us in relationship with each other to grow us. And I think that when we begin to understand that even in those relationships, it's still what God has spoken over us, which is the truth about who we are, that's going to change everything. As we get to live in the good news of the grace of what God has said. So let's be a people who begin to live that out, understanding God's hope first spoken to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us and move us as a people into a place where we trust what you have said first over us. That your spirit would come and convict us and lead us and guide us to remember the things that you have said. And not only would we remember, not only would we hear, but we would listen. We would listen enough to trust you enough 
that we can look at the bad news about ourselves, that we are nothing without you. That quickly move past that to the good news of who you call us to be. That we do not need to live our lives beholden to what everyone else has said. But we can live in freedom trusting what you have spoken over us. I ask that today we wouldn't just hear your words, but we would listen. And it would begin to change everything. That we wouldn't be slaves to the fear of what people or ourselves say. Lead us to be a people who are known in this world as those who live in great freedom. Where we can respond and talk to one another in hope and life again. Where we can honor you in all things because you are good. And we would return to be the people you have called us to be that we would take great joy in the things that you have spoken over us, that we would not be like Saul and trying to build our own monuments and define everything around us, but we would simply trust that you have called us your children and yet you have offered us grace. And you then call us to be your ambassadors in this world of who you are. So teach us to live that out in ways that bring you great glory because that will result in our freedom and our great joy. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for having your spirit lead us in all of these ways. Have us love you more than we love ourselves. And have us trust you for all the things that you've said. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.